Broadcasting live from Louisville, Kentucky, where the ladies are fillies, the men are sluggers, and nothing beats a trifecta. Speaking directly to your soul from the elusive wind zone command post. Established upon the doctrine of total victory. Submerged in the highest quality bourbon. This is the Swantastic Swancast. Louisville is alive and popping. The flowers are blooming. The fireworks are settled out. We had thunder over Louisville this weekend. It's officially derby season, and so we thought, what better time to bring in Louisville's own chief innovation officer from the mayor's office, Ted Smith. Hey. Good to have you in here. Happy derby to you. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, it's such a great time to talk about Louisville because this is the two weeks of the year. And really, there's really three days, you know, surrounding Derby or right before it, that Louisville's just the greatest city in the world, without yeah, question. Right. And so let's just um, let's see what Louisville's doing to help entrepreneurs. I know that there's a lot of listeners from other cities um, that are somewhat similar to Louisville size and in a similar position in terms of promoting entrepreneurship. So um, a lot that a lot of people can learn out of this conversation. So, Ted, why don't you just start off by just telling us what does that mean to be the chief innovation officer for a city of a million people? Sure. That's a great question. I've only been asked it almost every day since I started <laughs> this job five years ago. Yeah. What, what is <laughs> yeah, it that you actually you doing? Do? So, so my favorite story on that is uh, you know, just get the job. It's roughly sort of budget season. You go over to Metro Council and I won't name the council person, but, you know, essentially, you know, said, um, gee, we didn't used to have a chief innovation officer. You know, why do we have one now? Um, do you think you could get me a schedule of innovations, you know, that you have scheduled? And I said, well, councilman, uh, we wouldn't be in a recession if you could schedule innovation, would we? <laughs> so, you know, I've sort of always had that attitude, you know, so what can you and should you expect? You know, the, the, I guess the great thing about Mayor Fisher is, we were the first city of our size to have this job. Now every city of our size has somebody doing this job. And what it meant to the early cities like Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York that had this role, you know, quite honestly, it was really just like a front door to your local government uh, to work on things that, you know, maybe your local government wasn't uh, being necessarily helpful with. And so, you know, I, I like to use the term civic innovation, open innovation, and, and it's really to say this is the one part of our economy that has historically uh, been kind of a black box, sometimes out of sync with the rest of the economy. If you look at the sort of the private sector, you know, typically blazing way ahead, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll see the nonprofit and then the public sector just badly lagging. And, you know, quite honestly, I don't, I don't know if you guys know Clay Christensen, but, you know, he's this innovation guru at Harvard Business School. A, a while ago, he did this sort of deep studies, like, you know, what's wrong with the government? And he's kind of a, you know, kind of politically conservative guy. So I was ready, you know, I was ready for what's wrong. I knew all the answers. And, you know, after his research into this, he actually thought what was wrong, it wasn't the regulations, it wasn't the taxes. It was this idea that there was such a lag that, the public sector was just out of sync. And so if the private sector goes roaring ahead, think about Airbnb, which is, you know, in the news now as a public sector issue, Uber and Lyft. I mean, we come up with a long list of things, micro lending, you know, long list of things where the private sector is busy working out new models, new solutions, you know, and then there's public sectors like, well, we didn't used to do that. You know, we didn't do that yesterday. 
Why aren't you doing the things we were doing yesterday? And you get the rules. The most regulated part of our economy is the public sector. We have more rules than anybody else about how we should be. Yeah. Right. And so then there becomes this paradox, which is, well, I don't expect government to make jobs. Um, I would hope the government doesn't get in the way of making jobs. Sure. And that's kind of the, so the attitude becomes, how can we be better in tune with the growing, changing, adapting, evolving, competing private sector? How can we be that part of your economy and your community that's um, helping make sure the best of that comes true? And, you know, also keeping in mind uh, your eye on the worst of it not coming true. And so civic innovation for me and innovation in general in the public sector is really to be that sort of kind of middle person, that interface between the convention, how it's always done, and the pioneers who are really trying to do something different. Can I be a translator? And I came from the startup community. uh, And so, you know, I've done that sort of that run around the track and I understand many of the issues there. And now I see inside government, you know, where those, you know, what the reasons are for the the activity, really trying to figure out where the compromise is in a lot of cases. So let's go to a, all right, let's go to a very specific example, whether it's Uber, Lyft, or Airbnb. Yep. Um, How, what's the process like in Louisville, just as a great example, what's the process like for saying, all right, these companies are, uh, do we have to change the way that they operate? Do we have to take, um, you know, taxes from them in the same way we would take taxes from a Marriott or from a taxi company? Like those sorts of things. What's that process like internally? How does the government address those issues? Because I don't think most people understand it. It's just like this black box where you're like, well, Uber's allowed here, but not at the airport. And I don't understand why. Or Airbnb, I think, you know, I can go on the site and I can rent my house. I don't think anybody's going to knock my door down for doing so, but I'm not 100% sure on that until I read a headline. So what's that process like? Is the city council involved? Is that just the mayor stamping something? Or how does, you know, and and then also, where do you fit into there? Your job apparently is to say, all right, these things are coming and they're getting bigger. Um, Yeah, so let's... um. Let's look at Airbnb, and I'm not going to comment on the stuff that's going on right now. Just there's a there's a kind of a regulatory process of, you know, Metro Council evaluating options that we have as a community and all that. But to answer your question, is like, what is that process? And it really uh, it starts with, uh, generally speaking, these uh, these kinds of companies usually come in and start operating, right? And that's truly the case of Airbnb. So they operate for a period of time and then usually somebody notices, right? Now that the noticing can come from a lot of different places. The media can notice it, right? And they say, Oh, well, there's controversy in Baltimore and it's around this and there's Airbnb here, right? Um, and so you could get the media coming in. You can get uh, a vested interest, right? So somebody who runs, you know, a hospitality organization who says, well, you know, uh, we're not, uh, we're, we're not competing on a level playing field. Why don't they have to follow the same rules we follow? You could have the public sector come in and say, you know, we're losing revenue, you know, because there's a there's a bed tax. And so why aren't these guys paying the bed tax? So it can come from many different directions. And in this with Airbnb, it came from all of those directions, quite honestly. It sounds like it's almost always negative. Like somebody's noticing that they don't like this for some reason. Yeah, well, I mean, look, all change the first 
the first voices you hear typically um, that oppose whatever whatever is going on that's new are the vested interests that are generally you know either paying a price or or somehow inconvenienced by sure. right. And that's just true no matter what. It happens in the private sector all the time. I mean, companies compete with companies and they file lawsuits all day long, right? right I mean, right. just, you know, whoever is losing their cheese is the first to show up, right? And say, hey, someone's eating my cheese. <laughs> and so, you know, that's not surprising to any of us that that dynamic is alive and well. I think when it relates to things like these new services in the sharing economy, you know, you have the, the residents and visitors in our community who expect these things, right? And they say, you know what, when I travel over the world, these are great services that cities I like to visit have. And so there's a kind of a pool dynamic. So it's not just a pure competitive dynamic. There's a there's sort of the consumer in the middle. And when you have that going on, you end up with a much livelier debate. And so that's actually what we're going through in our community right now is citizens are weighing in. Now as the Metro Council is evaluating which kind of rules to make that would apply to Airbnb. And, you know, there's usually some amount of compromise. When you ask the question, you know, what, what's my job? Honestly, in the case of Airbnb, most of this is, is pretty straightforward stuff. And we just have to make decisions about where we want to put the line. The part that's interesting to me is when you look at uh, other applications, other benefits of some of these solutions, they have other kinds of social benefits. So for example, in the case of a natural disaster, in the case of a large-scale terrorist attack, having a robust Airbnb platform is actually part of disaster resilience. And you scratch your head, you're like, I, you know, I guess that makes sense. Like, if I had a ton of capacity in my mm-hmm. community to deal with displaced peoples, that'd be great. <laughs> because sure. that's one of the things that happens in urban disasters is, you know, just the, sh- the the dislocation of people is a really big problem. If you look at Katrina, how many people moved to Houston? How many people moved nearly a third of the way across the country, you know, to deal with a, a natural disaster in that case, right? So I like to look for those kinds of other attributes so that it isn't just a us versus them, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's actually the worst of innovation. So arguably Airbnb is a great innovation in the way people do temporary uh, housing, and, you know, we should be looking for all of the benefits, not just the sort of head-to-head, you know, it looks like a hotel room, it is a hotel room, you know, like, well, maybe it's a different kind of hotel, maybe there's other kinds of advantages to that kind of hotel. And I think, you know, I have a responsibility to look for those other items on the list. Do you ever feel like you're in a position where you have to pick winners and losers, or that you have that ability? Well, you know, anytime that it feels like that's what, it, you know, that's what's emerging, um, it's uh, always an uncomfortable feeling, you know, be, you know, because there, there's a great that's one of the great concerns about the public sector is, you know, if you are if, if you have rules and there are rules that apply to everybody, you know, what happens if the process gets contaminated so that the rule makers, you know, are, are you know, have some bias. Right. Right. Um yeah, I rarely feel that way. I mean, I will tell you the gigabit internet conversation I know has concerns in some parties, right? So if, uh, if you're an endemic provider of cable internet, uh, you know, you, you want to believe and you need it to be true that whatever we as a municipality are doing applies to everybody equally. And, uh, when I talk to people in the community, 
you know, there, I would actually argue in this case, there's actually a, um, uh, a frustration with the endemic telecommunications companies. Sure. Absolutely. I, I mean, a frustration, I think, okay, understatement. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I definitely get a lot of email about it. Um, and so, you know, it, it takes, you know, I mean, I think one of the responsibilities is to be completely restrained and say, you know what, it's got to be fair for everybody, whatever we're doing here. Um, and also listen to all these residents say, you know, we'd really like to see competition, right? We'd really like to see other kinds of services, you know, but that doesn't give me license or anybody in the Fisher administration license to start changing the rules, you know, so that we respond to that demand. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So that's a good segue. We're talking about, um, and we, we did an episode on Google fiber a few, right after the, um, one touch McGrady ordinance. Yeah. Where, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically, uh, the city council came together and said, um, Google Fiber or anyone else, I guess, that wants to, um, I think that's probably a little bit of key language that you're, that you were talking about earlier. Anybody else, this wasn't just, Hey, Google, you can come in and transform our city. Um, but anybody else that wants to lay fiber can use existing pathways or, um, poles or whatever, um, that, that exist as long as they put things back and don't disrupt the services of others. Is that, I'm glad you're not in charge of writing legislation. Is that layman's <laughs> really, that would be very difficult for anybody to follow. Um, so, yeah, it would. But I mean, there's a group that totally got what you just said, but I think it's very small and not sober. So, you know, the way, the way that, uh, the way that one touch make ready, really, the spirit of that is to say, if you're in our public right of way, right, you're in the public right of way, uh, and, and you're delivering a service, electricity, you know, what, whatever it is, um, you know, we, we think there are better and worse ways of, uh, more efficient or more safe ways of doing this. And so, you know, if, uh, in the case of one touch make ready, if you're attaching uh, a fiber optic cable to a, to a utility pole, you know, be, without this new rule, uh, we would wait for, in most cases, five trucks to roll out to a neighborhood, each one coming out, moving a line a few inches, and then another truck showing up, and then moving a line a few inches over a period of, in some cases, years. And so we can drive around Jefferson County, and we're not going to do it today, but, uh, you know, the number of stub poles we have in this community, the number of poorly lashed parts of telephone poles that are lashed to new poles is ridiculous. I mean, this is, you know, this is the 21st century we're, you know, pretty, you know, modern city in our own right. And, you know, that we have infrastructure that looks like from a developing nation, you know, mostly because that's actually the way it happens. So, you know, we'll just be waiting for the last person to move their line before we chop down the rest of the telephone pole. And what that means for the neighborhood is that means there's all this stuff coming in and out all the time, right? The road partially closed. You don't really know what's going on. Uh, you know, maybe feels like in some parts of our city, a little bit like a, a construction zone at all times. And so what one touch make ready is, is just to say, look, if you're an attacher, you have the ability to move everybody else's line a few inches, put yours up one truck roll and you're out. And the uh, analogy is, is one dig policy. So, you know, if you're going to rip open the road, why would you rip it open again two months later, right? You ripped it open to work on a gas line and the water company had a different idea and, you know, What's with the ripping up on the road all the time and stopping traffic and all that? And so really, that was really the spirit of it is why do we, why do we have such crazy, uh, interfering with the way the public operates 
if we don't need to. And so that's uh, the Metro Council all got together. I thought it was it was uh, it was courageous, you know, bold and progressive on their part to say, you know, we want to be a city that's working differently. That's yeah, cool. that seems to, but that upset um, the existing. Not, I don't know if it's really a monopolies, but oligopolies in terms of there's a few providers of each, uh, you know, especially when you talk about internet service or uh, cable television and things like that. There's just a couple options. Some places there's only one. Um, that upset them, correct? Because that made it easier for competition to roll in. Is that basically the summary? Uh, yeah, I think that's what people have said about it. Yes. Okay. That's what so, I mean, I mean, the other thing to know, I mean, there's a couple of really important things that were lost in your last interview, uh, which I did listen to. Uh, and that is in our community, those polls are owned by private companies. They're owned by LGE, mm-hmm. they're owned by AT&T. They're, so they're not owned by the public. They're not owned by a municipal utility. And so in that case, if somebody wants to attach to their poll, they have to enter into a contract with that poll owner. And if, um, if we were to pick on, say, Google Fiber, you know, Google Fiber has a national poll attachment agreement with AT&T. So they've already signed a contract to have that right to attach. And they've reached terms. They get, you know, they pay AT&T, you know, so, so don't think of this as like a hostile takeover of infrastructure. This isn't, right. I mean, and people have played it back to me and they're totally misunderstanding the situation. So the only people that should attach to a private poll are, are parties who have entered into a contract with that private poll owner. We're not stepping anywhere near that. And the only people that can touch that poll are on a list that that poll owner has. So we also didn't say, why don't you send an untrained monkey to go up on that poll? We said the only people that should go on that poll are on your list of approved uh, attachers, attacher technicians, right? right? So, you know, all we're really talking about here is whether five trucks should roll or one. Got it. And you know what? And then the rest of it is really a matter between private parties. Okay. We're just saying you're in our public space. If you're on private property, we wouldn't, this ro- law rule doesn't apply. Okay. So let's, now that we basically understand, you know, how these things get attached and all that, for the end consumer, it's going to be easier for Google Fiber or other uh, parties to come in and provide service to homes and businesses. So so we have um, five or six different companies right now, Uh, only one of them with ambitious plans for our whole county, but many with very specific plans, some on the eastern border of Jefferson County, some in the central business district. I am looking at the... Uh, Oldham County, like one mile across the line. <laughs> there, uh, well, no, Shelby County. I'm asking for a friend. There's a there's a Shelby <laughs> County uh, company. I don't know. Oh, now, I Old, it, part of part of the charm of Oldham County is the rustic. Yay! <laughs> you don't have the internet. Am I right? I mean, this is why people choose to move it's not there. That sounds so good for your friend. I mean, if you want to, oh man, if you want to do technology, you want to yeah. do entrepreneurship. Oh, I mean, there's boy. a better county choice. I think. I hear you. <laughs> so how do we, how does this benefit, how do we think this benefits, um, entrepreneurship or small business in Louisville, Jefferson County? How, have we done studies on that? Does this attract, uh, new talent? It seems like it would to me. I mean, I would want, if I was going to set up a company that was digital in nature, then having a stream that was constantly flowing and large yep. 
to attach myself to would be better than not. Yeah, so the truth of the matter is um, gigabit cities, or now Chattanooga is a 10 gigabit city. Um, you know, wow. These, yeah, I know. And they, the, by the way, the beauty of fiber optic cable is you just decide that, you know, kind of one afternoon, you update a little bit of the header equipment and you're, it's, it's speed of light, right? I mean, it'll be 100 gigabits, it'll be whatever you want it to be. Beautiful. So... That's so, um, so it's not the line itself, the cable. No, no, that's the, the same way it used to be, right? When it was copper, it was the line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, DSL, you know, I don't know how much more they could try to squeeze out of that copper, but no, you're, you're, the speed of light is your limiter right now. That's so amazing. That's, yeah. So wow. it's fiber counts and all that kind of good stuff. But I mean, these cables are you know, these fibers that all, everybody who's laying fiber now, I mean, it's laying fiber that's, you know, sort of 50 year ready fiber. Sure. So. So these communities, to answer your question, that have made this, you know, sort of big jump in, you know, what we'll call infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure, you know, they only did it five years ago, seven years ago. I mean, not really the time period that, you know, you write these big studies and say, well, you see, that's why Chattanooga is still alive today, you know. Um, and, you know, these cities are always looking for early proof. So Kansas City, Chattanooga... Austin, you know, these are, these are early gig cities. You know, generally speaking, everybody else in the country recognizes that this, this really could be a new expectation, baseline expectation. So I'm not talking about the luxury stuff. When you're the first city, you're the second city, that feels like a quirky, special thing. But, you know, when 15 cities all have this infrastructure readily available, and then 30 cities, now you don't want to be on the other side of that curve, no matter what. Yeah, it's not about attracting, it's about not losing. Yeah, so, so I, I, you very much, I think, should view this as not, hey, what's the ROI on having fiber and cost-effective ultra-high-speed internet? You should really look at it as, what would the cost be for not having it? And I, I would argue the cost is actually s- extremely high. And because this is expensive to do. And it's not an infrastructure we have today. And we're not a big city, you know, like Chicago or L.A., where they have whole swaths of their city that have so much density that it's just, there's an easy business case to be made for making that capital expenditure. Cities like Kansas City, cities like Louisville, cities like Nashville, you know, there's just a little, there's not enough density, there's not enough people. And so you're just, it's like an edge case analysis. And if you look at those markets, early markets for Google Fiber, early markets for AT&T gig power, you know, they really do seem to be focusing at the same time on mid-market cities that really uh, have had underinvestment from cable companies and smaller sort of cooperatives uh, ver- and at the same time chasing the super dense, super populated places. So it's a, it's like a dual track uh, model. And so we want to be winners in the mid-city, in the mid-sized city uh, analysis because there's not enough money for all of them, I don't believe, to get wired in a in a sort of short time period. So why do you think they focus on the mid market cities? Just to I think it's test the infrastructure. I think it's because of the underinvestment that the cable industry, you know, has has made. You know, since their bubble, you know, sort of burst in the mid nineties, late nineties, uh, you know, you know, you've seen the consolidation in our own market. That consolidation hasn't come with tremendous investments in new build. And you know, some of that's just because, you know, we're not growing at some meteoric rate that justifies the ROI in that capital build, right? So you'd really want to see, uh, you'd want to see a city that had headroom, you know, like a real opportunity to get paid early or paid on some reasonable schedule. And so mid-sized cities, you know, aren't growing at that kind of rate. 
Uh, so, and there's, there's, you know, so much sprawl in the build. It's just pretty risky. I mean, it's just a capital. It's like, it's like making bourbon. I mean, like mm-hmm. this time value of money, uh, getting that payback is, uh, it gets riskier as the cities get smaller. Now, weirdly, when the cities get really small, it gets better again because you can get everybody at once. And so, you know, you can go to Pikeville and you can see a gigabit internet, you know, being rolled out in a small Kentucky town because there's really no endemics that are interested in competing for the business. And so in our market, we're always going to have uh, endemic operators uh, who will take some market share. And then you've got the new operators coming in, really trying to get as much as they can to justify their new investment. And it, so it's a tricky dynamic, and it doesn't exist at either extreme. It only exists in the mid-market. Gotcha. Interesting. Now, how long have you been uh, chief innovative officer? Going on five Innovation. years in July. It seems like a long time. Yeah. Has your opinion of uh, the public sector and how it interacts with businesses changed since you said you were in a startup world before yeah. that? So you know, what were your expectations going in, and, and how did that flush out? Well, you know, I mean, I think every community um, is really shaped by the kind of leadership that you have. And and so Greg Fisher, you know, he recruited me into this job. I like Greg. Uh, you know, I knew a little bit about what I was getting into just because I know about him. And, you know, I think he has a vision for a city that is entrepreneurial, that uh, takes smart risks and so, you know, I didn't think, well, you know, I'm going to work for the city government. I thought I'm going to work for Greg Fisher. And so I, I felt that, you know, that I would at least be able to make the case for whatever I was trying to get done uh, while working for him. And he's really lived up to it. I mean, uh, you know, I think he loves this community so much and he wants it to be, it's a sort of a tough love. Like he wants us to be competitive on a global stage. And, uh, you know, he's willing to take uh, the risks that I think are necessary to get us there. What do you think is key for Louisville in the next 10 years? Like if you, if you have this, if you could set a plan for 10 years from now for innovation, what? A plan for innovation. Right. You should well, run for council. Yeah. <laughs> if you could, something, I mean, is it just case by case basis or is it, uh, you just react to the market kind of thing or? Yeah. Um, do you plan ahead or is it all reactive? So, so. Uh, I, I tried to follow this kind of basic methodology that uh, Michael Bloomberg set up, uh, and we were a Bloomberg Philanthropy Cities for many years. Uh, we got a $5 million grant from uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and, you know, he laid out this kind of playbook that I think is actually very, very reasonable. And that's essentially to say, in your community, what are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest opportunities? And where would doing something different help you get there faster? And, you know, so on the... On the challenges side, you know, things like, let's take IT skills, right? So, I mean, Louisville, Indianapolis, Nashville, Columbus, right? We all have these massive shortfalls in IT talent, massive, right? Thousands and thousands of jobs, single biggest gap in a high-wage job career, IT skills, right? So you could say, well, you know, let's lean on the community colleges a little harder. Let's see if we can get the speed school to triple the amount of people that graduate. You know, like all these strategies haven't been working really well. And every other city that looks just like us has been pursuing strategies like that with the same rough effect, right? Same general effect. You know, what we did is we started this crazy program called Code Louisville. And Code Louisville, I don't want to oversell it, but, you know, we saw the library had this free online courseware from Treehouse Learning. We, um, so we, so we knew like the cost of content was zero effectively for residents. Any resident of Jefferson County can, you know, get on there for free. 
um, we thought, well, you know, if we can figure out how to get smart tech, you know, experts to come on board as mentors, could we structure a pathway through this so that you actually are sort of doing the job? You know, so you, you got to set up a GitHub account. You got to, you got to go through the motions of using a version control package and you got to, you know, like actually not, it's not just watching videos about JavaScript. It's actually, you know, creating stuff that you have in a portfolio somewhere. Well, you know, we started that four years ago. Um, and today I want to get the network 700 people through the program. We'll probably get 2000 people through the program in the next two years. Um, and that program, you know, is a completely different way to work on IT skills, completely different. So it's not go to the accredited training channel, train 10 at a time or 20 or 30 or even 100. You know, it's actually highly scalable. It's asynchronous. You know, you can do it at home in your pajamas. You know, it's everybody's welcome to try, you know, that kind of thing. It's cohort based. And so we just chunks of people and we sign them guides and all that kind of stuff. We're making pretty good progress. I mean, like, if you compare what we're doing right now, now we certainly haven't closed the gap, but uh, the number of people we've brought into IT, and especially from all different backgrounds, unparalleled in the United States. This is the program. So, like, the Department of Labor ended up granting us a bunch of money to essentially scale it up. Hmm. And, you know, from my perspective, it's a flywheel, right? So, as the employers, I mean, these employers are hiring entry-level IT talent. And, you know, you only need to turn that flywheel twice, you know, really before you get a system that's actually just working. Mm -hmm. And so if you're really relieving my entry-level tech talent problems, those employers will invest in part to help keep a program like that rolling. And so to me, that's really the point. So we started with the pain point. We have an IT worker shortage. What are we doing with the pain? Well, you know, what, you know what, what's, what are we going to do that's different? And so that's a social innovation project. That's a project that I started Mostly because, you know, I tried the community college route, tried sitting down with the speed school, you know, like, and, and just, yeah. they were all, the no was the answer all the time. And so, you know, we're in an age where, you know, education's getting disrupted right and left. Sure. And why shouldn't we be trying to solve community problems with these new kinds of forces? That's cool. That answers my question. I like that. Start with the pain point. And that one hits home, too, because we have seen that shortage. Oh, oh it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, well, and, uh, and, you know, like if, if you go out to, tough. Here to Northern California, maybe the other problem, right? Like, so there may be enough talent, but you can't hold on to it but for an afternoon. Right, right. Right. And so, like, I don't know which is worse, like never being able to fill the job or filling it and then having to refill it and then refill it again. Right. I don't know. Um, We've got a few minutes left. Ted's on a tight schedule. And... um. So speaking of pain points, I'm going to bring up a couple pain points that I think entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs, but I think small businesses, it's, it's one of those things where I think, all right, what would it take to get some of these companies that have a dispersed, um, you know, a lot of companies start off, they have their tech talent somewhere else, they have uh, whatever, their founders are somewhere, they're, you know, in three or four different municipalities just because that's the way their business grew and they get to the point where they raise a series b round and now they're kind of going from let's say 40 employees to 400 where i think is such a sweet spot for a, a city like louisville to attract those type of companies and i don't think that necessarily we're doing uh, a great job of it or nor is probably any mid-market city um so how do you, how do you get those types of companies to come to Louisville? First of all, what's your answer to that? And then second of all, I can say a couple of reasons why I think companies don't come to Louisville. Um, pain points that 
probably should be addressed that Mayor Fisher may want to put onto his radar. I'm sure they already are, but um, you know, what do you think it takes to get? Because it's not a big headline grabber. It's not, you know, 40 jobs coming to Louisville. Right. But when you think about where the company's trajectory is, if you can grab a hold of the next Amazon or Uber or whatever, right. that's a big deal. Yep. Um, and you know, it's almost like venture capital investing. You get 10 of these companies to come in with 40 each. You got a shot at something real. So how do you think, uh, mid market cities could do a better job of attracting that type of, um, that type of company to just say, all right, here's where home base is going to be. Cause they have to make that decision at some point. Sure. So, um, you know, there's, there's really two ways to approach it conceptually. You, you can come at it from the kind of like textbook economic development. You say, you know what, in order to attract growing companies, um, that actually, you know, see themselves just growing in a place, right. Um, you look at structural things like, do you have direct air service? So it turns out direct air service is a big deal. Yeah, and that so, was one of my pain points. There you go. Right. So, um, b- believe it or not, it's a much bigger deal for headquartered Fortune 500 companies, right? You know, who need to travel around the planet more so than Uber, right? Like, yeah. so, so as, and as you move down to meet the companies below the Fortune 500 who are fast growing, who have a lot of employees, they too are interested in direct air service. Everybody is interested in direct air service. And so that's an item for sure. Textbook. Uh, university, uh, research. And so, you know, if you, well, I mean, let's Uber, right? So they go into Carnegie Mellon University and they raid the computer science department. They hire everybody. That's pretty interesting. Why do they do that? Carnegie Mellon has a really awesome computer science department. And so Google's in Pittsburgh, Apple's in Pittsburgh. They're all in Pittsburgh to be around Carnegie Mellon, right? In Austin, if you look at the story of Austin, UT is an important part of the story of Austin, Texas. If you look at some of the growth in Nashville, Vanderbilt is an important part of that story. And so, you know, again, textbook, you'd say things like airports, things like research universities um, are pretty important to those stories working out as you like to describe them. I think the other approach, um, which is, I, I think, really the one that we're on at the moment as plan A, is to work on um, what are the kinds of companies that will grow best here? And this is more, this this is, comes from the side of economic development that looks at what are the industries that are in your market? And so, you know, our industries, right? So it's in food and beverage, it's in logistics, it's in healthcare, um, and in manufacturing. We are a great place if you're um, into robotics in warehouses, right? We'd be a great place for you to build your robotics business. Now, I think we all recognize that there will be more and more automation in warehouses over time, right? Um, uh, people are the biggest cost in warehouses at this point. And so um, where will those companies be born? Because they have a market that's all over the world, right? So whoever makes the $1,000 robot that does all the pick and packs, you know, like whoever makes that robot is going to be making a lot of money for sure, right? right? So, you know, that side of, of economic of sort of cluster-based approaches really say, well, you know, we need to be talking to everybody who even looks remotely promising in this new kind of economy, in these industries where they already have their customers here. And when we complain about companies we lose, often we lose young companies because they go to their sort of home market, right? Yep. I mean, if you start a drug discovery and development company here, you're probably going to be leaving, right? Because all those companies grow up to be in New Jersey and, you know, uh, you know, Southern California. I mean, this is where they go to, 
you know, go to grow up. They don't grow up here. And so, you know, to have this mindset of what are we missing that's on the edge of these industries? Because that's where a lot of job growth is going to occur. We want to be those, we want to be the place where you see your first bunch of customers to develop your company and grow your company to the point where, you know, you, you get to be such a size that it just seems dumb to move, right? And that there's so much talent. And so if you look at food and beverage around here, it's particularly obvious, right? Like people move from Texas Roadhouse to Yum to, you know, right. whatever, in and out and all around. And that's just good for these companies, right? Because then there's always uh, a bunch of talent that they can grow on, you know, where they don't have the problem of, oh, I got to convince you to fly in from, you know, take a job interview and whatever. And so, you know, th- that's really the, 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 in my view, the best path for us at the moment while we work on some of those bigger things that really come with growth. Yeah, I think that's really cool. So is it your job to go out and identify those companies that would benefit from a cl- in this cluster? So, um, it's a team sport. I mean, the team is uh, led by our uh, economic development division. So it's Louisville Forward. So Mary Ellen Wiederwall and and her team. But you know, it's it's a team sport for sure. So, um, but it is. I guess I didn't mean you specifically. The city is the city creating a list of companies to go contact and say, look, you you would be perfect. We've got UPS here. You've got to be here. We've got you know Zappos, Amazon down the road. Uh, so the, absolutely this, the city has a list. Absolutely. Got it. You know, and, and you know, so does LG and E. So, I mean, anybody who you would think would benefit from these companies moving here, yeah. the state has a list, right? Um, you know, so that's really, that's the way it works. Cool. And, and you know, the, the truth of the matter is like everything in life, like it, it's actually often who you know. And so, you know, you, you could cold call and say, I think your company would be happier here. You know, the odds of, that actually working out are pretty low, but you know, the idea of trying to be in places where these organizations are being born, you know, so this year we sent a big group of people out to South by Southwest, you know, and you might say, well, it's about time you got around to that. But you know, in, in places like that, you just have a high surface area with all kinds of interesting people doing all sorts of things that some of it can be very relevant to this kind of strategy. They didn't know it, you know, when they met you, but you know, it's like, what don't you know about Louisville, Kentucky? Why shouldn't you visit? I've always thought Louisville is one of those cities that you need to uh, do sample marketing, right? Like trial marketing. Like you really should come visit us for a couple of days. A couple of days in the ne- at the end of April. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally. Yeah, Although, you know, I'd like to argue that might not be the most representative time to see <laughs> our city because, you know, it's a little more livable some of the other weeks of the year. That's true. Um, but no, I do, I do think, you know, it's our, it's our experience. If somebody comes and visits Louisville overnight and leaves, they end up with a different impression that somebody who spends two or three days here. And I think we should all, as ambassadors for our city, you know, think about that because I do, you do see it for sure. People fly in and fly out. You know, they thought they went to Columbus that afternoon, right? Just right. City, not many buildings. The airport was little, you know, but, but if you've been there for a while, then you start talking about the, you know, went to the grocery and you went, you know, these cool places yeah. that we have now. And, uh, and then they feel like they went to Brooklyn on sale, which is the way I sort of think about it. Yeah. That's really cool. cool. Or if you could just get, um, you know, if we could get all these, Louisville Southern Bells out across the country because mm-hmm. they I mean, invariably come back to everybody I know is here because they married. <laughs> that's a, a strategy. That, that's not a textbook strategy, but it is a strategy. <laughs> oh, they really are. I mean, everybody, everybody I know, they married a Louisville girl and now they're here to stay and it's fantastic. So I married a Chicago girl and I'm a Pittsburgh guy. So well, every met, now and then it's just, you can beat the odds. You met in the middle at, at one of the greatest <laughs> exactly. cities in the world. Um, yeah. All right. Ted Smith, chief innovation officer for 
the mayor's office, Mayor Greg Fisher's office. Appreciate you taking the time. We'll do more uh, of these because I think it's important um, for people to understand not only what the city's trying to do to attack, attract uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, but how they can participate in that process. And so probably next time we'll get a little bit more into how people can uh, participate and impact that process. But really appreciate having you on. Um, good work and keep it up and happy Derby. Hey, you too. Thanks so much for having me. All right, cool. Thanks. This communication has been compromised. The Swantastic Swancast will be in touch again shortly.